0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to In It, and this is Dave Birnbaum. Today we hear from Dr. Matthew Smith, who's co-founder and the chief scientific officer of Ember Labs. Ember Labs makes a device called the Ember Wave, which we talk about in the podcast. And I realized we talk about it as if the audience may have known about the device. So um, given that that's almost certainly not the case in every instance. I'm gonna give you a brief summary of what the device is and how it works. So the Ember Wave is a device that you wear on your wrist, looks sort of like a smartwatch, but it's a metal rectangle that fits on the underside of your wrist. And it can be made to get hot or cold by the user pushing a button on it. So in other words, there's a button to make the device feel colder and there's another button to make it feel hotter. And it changes temperature for some amount of time before resetting. This is an interesting device because it sounds deceptively simple, but what Matthew's team has done is create firmware that stabilizes the perception of temperature. So in other words, even though it feels like the device maintains a particular temperature, really what it's doing is maintaining a particular perception of temperature on your part by changing the signal that it's using to display the temperature. It also takes advantage of some interesting illusions that people may not even be aware of. You know, when we get into this in more detail, but think about when you say that you're feeling hot or cold. What you really mean by that is something quite complicated having to do with subjective experience of temperature and your relation to the environment around you, the distance of your current temperature to equilibrium, and many other factors, and so, What Matthew's team has done is create a device that models all of that and is able to carefully regulate your perception of temperature. The device is released in the market and has received accolades from many different corners, users, designers, and the media. So let's dive into a fascinating discussion about human temperature perception and technology with Dr. Matthew Smith of Ember Labs. Hey, Dave. Hey, how's it going? Good. Are you in some kind of awesome warehouse? Is this like an underground secret lair? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm in my back cave. Um, I am actually just in the Ember Labs offices. Um, this is one of our conference rooms. Wow.
0: It's like a bunker and a conference room. You are very safe in there.
1: Yeah, exactly. We do have some windows. We are, we are above ground, <laughs> <Cool>. thankfully. <laughs>
0: So how's your week going?
1: It's going really well. We just closed a fundraising round. Um, So we're going through a serious transition right now.
0: Cool. I think I may have gotten that email since we spoke last. There was this announcement that came in about funding and a new logo. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. It worked out really well that um, the rebrand and the new logo um, aligned with the closing of the fundraising round, although it could be misinterpreted to think that the first thing we did with the new capital was spend it on rebranding, <laughs> which was not the case. But it, it came together into a really nice singular event around which we could communicate to everyone the the changes we were going through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about Ember Labs. What what are you up to? It's the first thermal wellness technology company, and I know that um, you you have your roots in comfort. You're switching to something more akin to health and wellness. So maybe just by way of background, how did you come about this whole concept?
1: Ember Labs is a company that is obsessed with temperature. We have spent five years now coming from a very rigorous kind of scientific environment and on the kind of hunch that technology around us was rapidly changing in so many ways and yet our thermal experiences seemed still fairly primitive so we started actually six years ago in a hackathon interested in making a wearable personal comfort system and that got us thinking about how people experience temperature inside the built environment and ways that we could create value for people there.
0: So built environment, like buildings and homes.
1: Yeah, yeah. We started looking at existing personal comfort systems and realized that everything had been made with kind of military applications, um, like warming devices for freezing cold or cooling things for soldiers in the desert. But the normal person spends 90% of their time indoors. And we were really interested in seeing what we could do if we focused on helping the everyday person with their temperature problems rather than focusing on the extremes.
0: Right, right. And and so it's an interesting model because it's almost like, I mean, from a design perspective, it's like you're taking people's thermal state And taking it away from the room and putting it on their bodies kind of directly, right?
1: Yeah, we definitely, it's definitely a kind of scale change from thinking about building scale HVAC systems or even automotive compartment systems to thinking about the individual person. And we ended up going even a step further than that. We're not even thinking about the person's heat balance equation kind of how much heat is actually coming into or leaving the body, but focusing specifically on how people perceive temperature. So we took it all the way to the other end about not even an objective state, but a subjective state of an individual.
0: That's one of the key insights that led to this entire technology, right? So tell me, so this is sort of like an engineering-driven company, right? Um, You you discovered a new kind of science of temperature perception, and then you built a business around it. What's the story
1: there? Yeah, it is quite the story. Um, So we were in the material science department at MIT, David, Sam, and I. And material scientists um, love devices with no moving parts because then it means we're allowed to make them. So we learn a lot about batteries and a lot about other solid state devices. So I was a semiconductor device person um, by education and so was very familiar with thermoelectric cooling and thermoelectric generation. Um, Thermoelectrics are also known as, as Peltier coolers. They've been around for a long time. I think everyone who gets their hand on one thinks they're just literally and figuratively very cool. But you can... I see what you did there. Yeah. I, um, my day is full of temperature puns and has been for a while now. Uh, (laughs) just at the basic level though, a Peltier cooler can take a flow of electrons like that coming out of a battery and turn it into a flow of heat without any moving parts. So by changing the direction of the flow of electrons, you can change the direction of the flow of heat and very silently without any moving parts, actually warm or cool, a surface. Hmm. So this technology, like I said, has existed for, for a long time. Um, we were being learning about it in textbooks, and it's used today in a lot of telecommunications and automotive applications. They're used on satellites and wine coolers, some fairly niche applications where you don't have the space or for some reason don't desire a conventional compressor for Cooling
0: hmm. wait, what are the telecommunications and what are the automotive applications today?
1: well, they are used in um, cooled seats So if you've been in any like new automotive interiors, you can not only heat your seat, but cool it so hmm. that is I believe it one of a big market for thermoelectric devices and in telecommunications, it's about Cooling the lasers basically cooling the electronics that you're using to beam information around Because hmm. they are pretty compact Interesting Yeah, some very interesting applications um, And some very experienced engineers out there familiar with designing thermoelectric systems, but our approach to Thinking about how to use it to affect a person's Perspective of temperature led us to a totally different Domain of operating thermoelectric modules
0: hmm. So how did you discover that direction?
1: Being sort of overly educated in <laughs> thermoelectrics We knew that they were considered fairly high-powered devices And so to make one wearable we had to really reduce the power consumption so we recognized just by playing around with thermoelectric devices that we could really feel the cooling of the thermoelectric a lot more right when we turned it on. But after a minute, we couldn't feel it anymore. And at first, we thought that something was kind of breaking in our system. So hooked up all the temperature sensors and saw that, nope, it was still cooling, we just couldn't feel it. So we started down a rabbit hole of how do people feel temperature. And we feel temperature like all of our senses through very specific um, receptors. In this case, there are nerve endings in our skin called thermoreceptors. Mm -hmm. And thermoreceptors, we have different thermoreceptors for warm and cold um, sensations, which is just kind of curious. And they are not absolute thermometers. So the reason we felt cooling so much more right when we turned on our earliest prototypes was because we felt that initial temperature change much more than we actually felt the surface that was cold but not changing temperature. And because of the complexities of thermoelectric cooling You can actually change a temperature without using nearly as much energy as you need to keep a surface cold. So that Mm. was really our – from a tinkering engineer's perspective, that was our first aha moment about, oh, we could actually significantly reduce the power consumption of this thermoelectric if we just wiggled the temperature profiles around. And with more research, we developed dynamic temperature profiles Specifically around the sensitivity of our thermoreceptors and focusing on how to use temperature changes to stimulate our thermoreceptors while using as little power as possible. Right. Has has been a, a big focus of ours.
0: So you're like you're hacking human perception of temperature in order to create these sensations kind of at will. And then and that's the that's the engineering side of it. But then you combined that with another insight from human perception about your sense of comfort right that like your your comfort level when it comes to temperature isn't directly derived from your core temperature it, it, there's an illusion there too that you can take advantage of
1: yeah and that has that was a really kind of flip-flop between thinking that that's like really obvious or completely counterintuitive depending on how you think about it because when we're hot we obviously like cold objects right Mm -hmm. like a cold drink on a hot day is very pleasant but when we think about thermal discomfort we think about it conventionally as if i'm hot it's because like i have more heat in my body and i need to let it out but your body's maintaining a pretty constant core temperature independent of your perceived thermal comfort or discomfort within the built environment where you're really just being exposed to moderate levels of discomfort. Yeah. And it's like,
0: it's like a language problem, yeah. right? It's like, um, mm-hmm. you say yeah. like, you're like, Oh, I'm hot right now. You know, your core temperature probably isn't changing that much, but you're like, I'm hot. And then you drink a cold drink and you're like, ah, oh, now I feel better. Now I've cooled off mm-hmm. that none of that is actually true, but that's just how we speak. Cause that's how we feel.
1: Yeah. And your body is a dynamic system, like you have an engine that can rev up or relax. And we found really early on, again, being trained as scientists, we were constantly, we were just reading all the papers that we could find on this, a really awesome body of research from people who are now very close collaborators of ours at the Center for the Built Environment at UC Berkeley. And that's Dr. Ed Ahrens and Dr. Hui Zhang, hmm. along with Richard Dadir De in Australia, who studies this concept of aliasthesia, which literally means the pleasure you experience from temperature changes. Wow. And they, yeah, so they had already really f- fleshed out in an incredibly rigorous way how local thermal sensations and also dynamic thermal sensations can influence your perceived comfort.
0: Hmm. So so we can dive more into the kind of the science and I want to, but um, before we get ahead of ourselves here, I want to hear more about the Wave device um, because it's a really awesome story. It has a long history actually, and it's a little bit personal to me just because I remember That first Wired article, I remember sending it around at my company and thinking, oh my gosh, did these guys just figure out this amazing haptic illusion that we can take advantage of kind of as interaction designers? And um, I just love that that initial excitement turned into an entire company. And so it's it's a super great story that I think you've told me once before, but I'd love
1: to hear it again. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So. When we started this project, um, it went by the name Ristify. <laughs> um, because again, we were not marketing people, and these insights that we were just talking about came during a hackathon back in 2013. And then after winning that hackathon, which was cool, and in full transparency, I joined this hackathon team because I thought I'd be able to like pay off a credit card if we won being in grad school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But after winning, it got picked up by Wired. And you referenced this article, which somewhat hyperbolically said, is this wristband going to replace air conditioning? And that was really such a lucky break for us because we started getting just tons of emails from people. Like you said, you heard about it. So we went from a small side project of three guys interested in playing with thermoelectrics to like oh my god MIT People are gonna like replace air conditioning with wristbands But what came of that for us was just hearing a, from a lot of people about their temperature problems hmm. and so overnight we had a few thousand email addresses of people who had reached out because they were like you said you were interested from a haptics perspective there were researchers but there were a lot of people for whom temperature um, was just a big problem in their in their life so that happened in that was in the fall of 2013 and we also started participating in like little demo days around cambridge and doing demos with our pretty janky desktop benchtop prototype and getting some really interesting feedback from people. Certainly some people just thought it was novel, but other people felt it and just immediately said, oh my God, I want one of these. And it was really energizing to see how excited people were about what we were doing.
0: I mean, you say you're not a a marketing person, but I think it was brilliantly marketed to the extent of solving a problem that is related to sustainability, environmental impact. I mean, if you really could... Use new understanding of science to eliminate or reduce reliance on air conditioning. That would be amazing, right? So, I mean, I I just thought the way that the way that that article was written and the way it was packaged. I don't know how much of that was you and how much of it was the journalist, but it was sort of the right idea, right? I mean, and that's why it resonated. So, so I don't want you to sell yourself short there. I think that was, (laughs) I think it was a good idea, you know, and and it succeeded on its own merits. And then you discovered that this whole population of people were interested in that effect for reasons not related to sustainability. And so so we started thinking more in terms of comfort. So what kinds of people did you hear from?
1: Well, you know, from demo day one, or even our earliest departmental demo days, the admins in the department were super excited about what we were doing. And so we did not you know people emphasize a lot in entrepreneurial ecosystems how important customer discovery is women having to deal with the symptoms of menopause found us within months of us existing and that was certainly really surprising i kind of only knew about hot flashes as like i don't know a footnote of aging jokes in like the greeting card aisle like i didn't really know what that was about but Safe to say, many years later, I am now very caught up <laughs> on the many challenges of the menopausal transition that women have to go through. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, just even people too cold in the office or people who are just chronically cold, thermostat wars are are very familiar to, to all of us. And we continue to be surprised. There's people out there with Raynaud's, multiple sclerosis, different forms of dysautonomia, really interesting to hear about the number of different challenges that people face every day with respect to temperature. And in many ways, it really feels like they were kind of all like keeping quiet. Like they kind of all felt like, you know, if you're sitting in the same room with someone and they're comfortable, then you can't complain about your thermal comfort. So there's really like an underserved, we think we call them the thermally underserved that got really excited about someone trying to come up with new temperature solutions.
0: Yeah, because they didn't bring it up. They don't bring it up because they don't think there's any way to solve the problem, right? I mean, they weren't aware that you could strap something to your wrist and feel differently about your entire thermal state, which is which is fascinating. So, so you started this, you made this prototype, people started reaching out to you.
1: You're like, OK, there's something there. What was next? So everyone on the team was feeling really excited about how this project was going. I was in a position where I felt I, – well, I remember specifically we got some investors emailing us and we thought, oh, great, yeah, let's fundraise, like not having any idea what that meant or required. And I, we still have the meeting notes of this investor call where they were like, well, none of you are full-time, so call us back when when you have full-time team members. Mm-hmm. And within two months of that, I then quit my postdoc, took out a loan, and I was like, all right, I'm full-time Clearly, that was the only obstacle to us, like raking in the dough and making this a reality. So that was in January of 2014, and we took the leap. We were – actually, David, Sam, and I were each in different stages in our kind of careers at at MIT. Sam was an undergrad. David was about halfway through his PhD, and I was a postdoc. So I was in a position to kind of the first person to go um, full-time, and – in hindsight i'm kind of glad i didn't know how long and hard it would be but now we're we're on the other side of it and i'm so glad that um that we took that that leap
0: not only did you take out a personal loan but i think you mentioned you you lived in an undergrad dorm for 3 years as a postdoc
1: yeah the i had a very i met a very supportive woman around the same time that we started this hackathon and so we had been dating for about a year And she thought I was completely crazy for having, leaving my postdoc and was a GRT, which is like an RA at MIT. And so I was able to move in with her. And so I ended up totally not as planned, finishing my PhD and then moving back into an undergrad dorm for three years. But I don't want to say that in a too disparaging way because the dorm community was just really awesome. And, uh, They gave significant others meal plans, so I got housing and dinner for three years while we were figuring this out. Wow.
0: Okay, so you took the plunge, and you're full-time. How long did it take you to create a product and bring it to market, and
1: what's the story of that? So this was, took the plunge, moved into the dorm in the summer of 2014, I believe, and we had done an accelerator and we're just starting we entered the intel make it wearable competition which ended up leading to kind of our second wave of of a decent amount of media attention and so we're pretty certain that we'd emerge from that um raise a bunch of money and in you know a year and a half be shipping our our product so it seemed pretty we thought pretty feasible. Um, granted, we had never done this before. And I have like a deep Google Drive now of roadmaps from 2014, 15, 16, and 17, where shipping our product was like always, always just a year and a half away, um, which I don't, which I think is probably a pretty familiar story for people trying to ship a hardware product.
0: I'm sure yeah, it is. But but what's interesting is I mean, you have a very straightforward story and motivation and use case, user experience. It's like make it so that there's a heat pump that you can manufacture and sell that you can wear on your wrist that's battery powered and has basically, I think, two buttons, right? Hot hotter and <laughs> yeah. colder. And so it's like this bounded problem. And so I'm very curious, was it something particular about the technology, the power management? Were there business challenges? Like what caused that long first development cycle?
1: It was a number of things. I fully appreciate now that building a business has just as many moving parts, if not more, than building a a gadget. And the basic challenge that we encountered was proving on a shoestring budget that our technology actually provided enough value to people that they would pay for it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's the simplest definition of a business. You're providing enough value that someone will pay for it. And because we were a wearable technology, we had to get our prototypes. So what we ended up doing was iteratively prototyping until we could get to a point that It was robust enough to send into the field for a week at a time. And whether or not that sounds easy or hard probably depends on your like engineering chops. But it's not super easy to be able to send – give a sort of layperson a gadget and say, please use this in your life for a week. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until the – summer of 2015 that we had a prototype that was robust enough that we could send it into the field and then we won an award called which is an awesome award and i want to plug it because it was really valuable for us as a hardware startup called the cool ideas award from proto labs hmm. and so that they ended up paying for the fabrication of a batch of 50 of these prototypes and so suddenly we went from having one to five things that broke in the field to 50 gadgets, 50 wristifies, as they were called then, that we could actually send home with people. So this was all just getting enough data points that we could convince the relevant partners and investors that we had something that was worth bringing to market. So we did field trials with people from our mailing list who wanted to try it out and we let them use the prototype for a week different segments of people one of whom was women dealing with hot flashes but also guys who ran hot and women who ran cold and gave them a chance to pre-order it at the end of the week and even though we we weren't even though it was a crude prototype and we weren't able to tell them what it would look like or when they would get it we gave them opportunity to pre-order one with their credit card at the end of that week. And so it was the that conversion rate that we were able to then take to Angel Investor and convince them that we had something, that we could give this relatively primitive prototype, two buttons and a light, two people, and get credit cards back from about one in four people who tried this um, pre-ordered without any guarantee of timeline or what the product would look like. So we were a very kind of customer oriented, but still very empirical um, approach to showing value. Because we recognized that being a wearable technology it was really all about is this creating value in people's day-to-day lives?
0: Yeah, and then the Kickstarter campaign came after that, and then that must have given you a lot of insight into what people wanted, right? That's a great kind of way of engaging the market, I would imagine. I've never done a Kickstarter.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the Kickstarter was so thrilling at the time. I remember showing up at 6 a.m. the day of launch, getting ready to to go for it. At that time, we had hired a head of marketing named Jake Abrams, who's now VP of marketing and continues to, to run the show. At that stage, though, we had already raised some capital and actually designed the whole product and literally just needed that Kickstarter capital to pay for inventory. So I am a little averse to bragging, but I am proud of the fact that we not only had a successful Kickstarter, we had a target of $100,000 and sold over $600,000 worth of pre-orders. But then we delivered all those units either on time or early. And that we were really proud of because we felt like we were really treating our customers with respect, not stringing them along and only taking their money when we knew we were ready to to ship them something. Sure. So things really kicked into gear with that. Kickstarter was in September of 2017. We started shipping in Q1 of 2018. So we've to date had one holiday have one holiday season under our belt. But we do have now a year and a half of um, consumer sales.
0: That's awesome, but so so, I guess you you had kind of solved your user experience and your value problems before going to Kickstarter. You didn't use Kickstarter for feedback on features or anything like that?
1: Well, it was certainly valuable. so we we actually didn't even tell anyone that it had a mobile app until halfway through the Kickstarter. We thought that that would be a nice add-on to keep people interested. and so, not just on the hardware but also software functionality, we were able to take a lot of feedback from people both during the Kickstarter and once we started shipping our first units. And to our early waivers who got their units in Q1 of 2018, uh, they can attest to how far this device has come on the software side. So we ended up spending most of 2018 engaging a lot with our customers, listening to them, and continuing to try to improve the experience to to meet their needs
0: that's cool and it's a little bit of a digression but something that impresses me about the wave is the design it's very nice i mean it's beautiful the materials are nice the sandblasted effect on the surface there's no no real plastic there's like some ceramic and um it's just really really beautiful and it looks nice on people male and female so i'm just curious what was there any kind of story there? How did you arrive at such a nice industrial design?
1: Yeah. Our co-founder, David Cotonuji was head of product through the development of that of this Gen One product, which which we all love. Um, he was responsible for finding a product design firm called Loft, which is a small ish shop based out of Providence, Rhode Island. And thankfully, Loft um, really guided us through the hardware development process. We had never brought a hardware product to market, and so they saw the potential of what we were doing. were really excited in helping us bring something new to market, and worked really closely with us to understand our vision for it, and also help with the user research. To we really. Throughout that process, we knew that we wanted to make something that could appeal to an older woman, um, but at the same time appeal to like a stereotypical like Kickstarter gadget enthusiast. Hmm. And so the design, you know, there's only you only get one first hardware product to market. And so this design and the product will always have a special place in our in our hearts. And it's worked out really well. We've now sold over 50,000 of them and just launched a rebrand without actually changing the hardware products. So as far as this first gen product goes, it's had some serious legs. And so props to David and to the team at Loft for, for getting us there.
0: That's awesome. Okay. So pivoting back to kind of the temperature science behind all this, I'd love to kind of dig in a little bit more. So you talked about how Um, The nerve endings in our skin work to sense temperature and how there's something unintuitive there, which is that we have two systems, one for hot, one for cold. But actually, that's not even perfectly accurate because isn't it the case that the nerve endings sense heat flux, right? They actually sense how fast your body heat is being lost kind of in that area. It's not so much the, the external temperature that you're sensing either. Is that
1: is that a is that a nuance that matters to you? The way we feel temperature is fascinating and it's not objective, which is probably not a sur- shouldn't be a surprise, right? We're very familiar with optical illusions. We're very familiar with auditory effects that take advantage of of the specific mechanisms by which we we hear So for temperature, it turns out there's a number of somewhat counterintuitive things going on. One of them that you alluded to is we are really sensitive to temperature changes. And we actually have many more cold, sensitive nerve endings in our skin than warm, Hmm. which I just thought was interesting. It's the evolutionary story behind that. I mean, this is actually just so we all have an accurate image on our head. If you look at, say, your wrist, you only have one warm thermoreceptor for about every three to four centimeters. Really? Or two to three centimeters squared. Yeah. And if you take, I've read this, I can't say I've actually mapped out my own thermoreceptors, but if you just take like a warm point and move it across your skin, you can find the hot and cold spots where your nerve endings are lo- where your temperature sensitive spots are located whereas your cold nerve endings your cold thermoreceptors are more like several per square centimeter so you have many more cold thermoreceptors in your skin than warm evolutionarily they say that it's because cold is much more of a survival threat than warm hmm. if you exclude the invention of fire and now everything else that when now we have stoves, and it seems like warm is much more of a hazard, but as packs of mammals um, you know, moving through the forest, cold was actually much more of a survival threat.
0: That's interesting, and I don't have any research backing this up, but another thing that occurs to me is that we use temperature to um, identify materials, right? So like, it, like when you feel something mm-hmm. and you say this feels like wood or this feels like metal, What you're really doing, apart from the texture, which plays a role, you're also saying this is sucking my my body heat out at a certain rate that I'm familiar with and I remember as being similar to other things that are metal or wood. Yeah. And so I I just, just I wonder also if uh, the number of cold sensitive receptors have something to do with material identification. And actually, that brings up a question. Mm-hmm. What, what What is the layout on the hands for thermal sensitivity? Do you know?
1: Our collaborators at UC Berkeley have published some really awesome thermal sensitivity maps. The, this research goes back to like the early 1900s that people were mapping out these warm and cold spots on our skin. So I can't really describe it verbally, <laughs> but it's roughly that same sort of density and your, your example of material discrimination is, is a really fascinating one. So when we're sitting at room temperature, say a moderate room, your skin is probably 10 degrees Celsius warmer than the room around you. So from a totally backwards perspective, you might say, why doesn't everything in this room feel cold? Like I'm so much hotter than everything in this room. But as you said, only like metal feels cold and that's because it can move that heat out of your hand. When you feel a piece of wood, you're really just temperature-wise feeling your own body heat. And that's why if you then take an IR camera and look at some place you touched, you actually just warmed that surface and it wasn't able to remove heat fast enough for you to notice any meaningful heat loss from your body.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so we've talked about the peripheral nervous system, now moving up to the central nervous system. How do we interpret thermal sensations in the brain?
1: It's a very rich uh, and complicated question. It turns out that our subjective human experience is very closely tied to thermal sensations. So again, we think the, the kind of layperson model for temperature is I feel hot, therefore I have too much heat in my body. But actually you're processing these local sensations all the time and they're processed in your brain by a complex network of regions in the brain that you can use to understand a number of the different aspects of experiencing a thermal sensation So you think we've all been feeling temperature our whole lives. So everything I say will sound a little familiar, but there's a lot to unpack when you feel something warm or cold. We talked about the discriminatory aspect of feeling something. You know, we use temperature to explore the world around us. Feeling warm or cold does activate the somatosensory cortex, the part of the brain that we use to kind of explore the world around us or processing touch. But thermal sensations also have an element of pleasure. There are academic papers from the 70s that describe you feel temperature on two dimensions, intensity and pleasantness. And that's something that we've all experienced our whole lives, but had never really you know, been made explicit and just as super interesting. But when you feel something warm or cold, so it could feel cool, Slightly cool cold warm hot But almost independent of that is whether that's pleasant or not right something really hot on your hand when you just came off the ski slopes Feels amazing Something really hot on your hand or on your feet when you're like sprinting across the parking lot at the beach very unpleasant (laughs) and so the pleasantness aspect of how you feel temperature is your body telling you consciously whether that sensation is corrective for your body as a whole. If you're cold, warm things feel good. If you're uh, warm, cool things feel good. But there's also a emotional aspect to, to temperature. And that's where we get into what here at Ember Labs, we are really excited about unlocking is how temperature and thermal sensations are connected to the autonomic nervous system and your experience of stress and emotion. There's a body of psychology research about how humans, because we're warm-blooded mammals, associate temperature a lot with social interactions So the verbal expression of a warm smile or a cold shoulder, we use that language because we actually feel social warmth as warm. And we feel social isolation as cold. Mm. And your skin temperature actually drops when you're being socially excluded. Really? Even crazy. Yeah. It's really Wild. So that's
0: fascinating because that, that connects back to this, you know, there's these embodied cognition studies about how what you think is controlled by your sensory inputs to some extent. And one of the studies, the ones that I like to cite when I'm trying to convince people of this, and I don't remember the details, but it was a situation where people were asked to kind of mingle at a party and they were either asked to hold a, a warm drink or a cold drink. And afterwards, they rated other people as having warmer or cooler personalities based on the drink that they were holding. But what you're saying now is like even more ex- even more of an interesting phenomenon because it kind of it closes the loop, right? It, it's not <clears throat> even that we use thermal metaphors to describe social experiences, but that we have thermal experiences as a result of social interactions, and that then we may we might verbalize those in terms of thermal sensation, but really we're describing the social interaction. That is amazing.
1: Yeah, it's wild. And as you alluded to, it's bi-directional. And we hear from customers today who are using Ember Wave to help them manage their social anxiety to like actually as a tool for their own social interactions in that realm. Again, something that if you were just an engineer tinkering with a thermoelectric, you'd never think you could be making something that would actually impact how people interact with other people but we're super excited about about where we've ended up and there's so much more to unpack in terms of how thermal sensations can can augment the human experience
0: wow and, and there's something so it was called alesthesia right alesthesia yeah is that only for temperature or is that pedonic responses to any sensory input
1: alesthesia Root words literally just means pleasure from change. Okay. I'm referring specifically to thermal alleesthesia. You can also have positive alleesthesia and negative alleesthesia, So it could be referred to the pleasantness or unpleasantness of, of sensations. And certainly it is not as a concept just unique to temperature. As a human, we experience pleasantness in response to a change. If that change is nudging our body back towards homeostasis, we have many systems in our body that are constantly kind of revving up and or like fluctuating. And our body has a sense of this is where i like to be. And if at any point you're off center, and you experience something that is nudging you back towards center, you're body sends you a signal of pleasantness as a way to kind of behaviorally tell you yeah we like that like get more of that please
0: (laughs) i was just thinking about what do you call that when you know these people they jump into a cold pool and then they go into a a warm jacuzzi well i used to do that as a kid and it was just fun but now there's actual (laughs) places that you go that are like wellness centers right and it's called i can't remember what it is like some kind of thermal therapy or something Uh, yeah cold therapy or something like that what, have you looked at that at all?
1: I think in a, in a broader sense, with through this lens of nerdy guys thinking about temperature, you start viewing all of these behavioral things that we do through a slightly different lens. So, just in general, like how much of spa culture is really about the thermal experiences, and how much of a warm mug of tea is about the tea versus about the warmth and we as humans behaviorally have been seeking out thermal sensations for their pleasantness and holistic benefits for all of time and we're really excited to continue to see what we can unlock by giving people very precise immediate you know modern technology to harness the power of that
0: wow Before we move on, we were talking about illusions a bit and I just wanted to touch on this thermal grill illusion and ask you what's going on there. So the background is you can can take a copper ribbon and wind it around a pole, right? And you can have another copper ribbon kind of next to it and you can drive one with heat and one with cooling. So you have this alternating hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold banding going around the pole. And when you ask somebody to grasp the pole they'll have like an immediate scalding sensation, like they're being burned and they'll let go, even though the heat is not hot enough to cause you any kind of pain and neither is the cold. And then if you if you force, I mean, I've done this and I force myself to hold it, I can kind of get over it and get used to it. But I don't think that I could ever not have that initial panic reaction when doing it for like the first time in a long time. Just wondering what's going on there. <laughs>
1: The thermal grill illusion is studied to this day as a tool for helping us understand better the complexities of what goes on between the nerve endings just beneath the surface of our skin and the signals that they generate and then the integration of those signals as they move from your peripheral to central nervous system. So the the gist of it is as you you described it perfectly when you it, when your body is feeling these spatially confined strips of warm and cold, the signals just get crossed up and it ends up feeling pretty painful um, and not like heat or cold, but I think you could say kind of like tingly, like singy. Another really interesting phenomenon that's used, that's studied and part of this sensory physiology is called thermal referral so if you put your pointer finger and your ring finger on something warm and you have something not warm on your middle finger you will still feel warmth on your middle finger spatially because your nerve endings are distributed across your skin The spatial dimension of feeling thermal sensations and processing them is another dimension in which there's a lot of unintuitive effects going on. So, we kind of talked about the time dimension and our sensitivity to rates of temperature change, but there's also the spatial aspect because ultimately, when you feel something warm or cold in a location, there's a certain, there's a very finite countable number of nerve endings that are firing in response to that and then those signals need to get integrated as they um, move up to the brain.
0: And the wave of course is worn on the bottom of the wrist or the underside of the wrist. I'm sure that was a conscious choice based on a, a bunch of practical factors but have you looked at use cases for other locations or multiple simultaneous locations? Are you starting to think about how the use cases might change based on on spatial location?
1: Yeah, that's a very fundamental dimension to the future of our technology is where on the body and what type of effects can you unlock at different locations because certainly your body processes things differently. The underside of the wrist is very temperature sensitive. Part of us being able to make a heating and cooling wristband or a wearable heating and cooling device required that we focus on an area that was really had a high density of warm and cold thermoreceptors, meaning it's very sensitive. And we have a grant from the National Science Foundation supporting the development of these wearable personal comfort systems. And we're going back into the lab um, at UC Berkeley quite a bit in the coming year. And this idea of different locations and ways to exaggerate the augmentation of people's thermal experiences at different locations on the body is certainly very interesting to us and we think full of potential. That's
0: great. Okay, so for for applications, um, I know that you mentioned thermal comfort and certain people have needs or they run hot or they run cold or they have some kind of medical issue that, that causes them to have Thermal discomfort in everyday situations that this can help them with, but then I also I remember we were talking about um, temperature and sleep, and that you're starting to look at that more deeply.
1: It was a really interesting development cycle um, because we launched Ember Wave in early 2017. When we launched it, and I am going to come to <laughs> I'm going to come back to sleep, and this is the story ends on your question about sleep. But when we launched the device. It actually only warmed and cooled for between three to five minutes. So the first piece of feedback we got was, please make it work for longer, (laughs) which was a very understandable request. So we released an extended mode based on some advancements in our control systems later that year. And along the way, we were also learning through the aggregated data of when our device was being used and saw that over 10% of usage was coming in the middle of the night. So we started looking more closely at that in particular. And lo and behold, almost everywhere we look, there's this compelling story about how temperatures impact in the human experience. And we started reading up on sleep and the role variations in core temperature that occur throughout the day, but also how peripheral temperature and thermal sensations can also help help promote sleep. So we listened to a lot of customers and developed what we called a fall asleep mode by the end of the year. And that has been a very pleasant surprise and its in its success. So it was developed to help people fall asleep and manage sleep disturbances throughout the night. Over one quarter of our users now have used fall asleep mode, and the average user is using it multiple times multiple times a night. We even it led to a uh, partnership with Johnson and Johnson in which we looked at in a clinical setting the use of our device for helping women pre and post menopause deal with sleep better basically. And those results were actually just presented at the North American Menopause Society. And they were all very extremely encouraging, concretely showing the extent to which we are able to impact sleep through local thermal sensations. And we really believe that that is another but certainly not the end of where we can go with allowing people to use thermal sensations to live a better life.
0: As you were talking, I was thinking about the app. The app is what led you to that insight, right? If, if your original idea to release the product without an app had happened, you may not have ever learned with anal- through analytics that people are using this at night. So that's kind of an interesting learning that um, apps are nice because you can mine data from them.
1: Yeah. And ship people updates. That's kind of the two. It's the the value goes both ways. And we we had many meetings were had back in like 2015 and 16 about whether whether our MVP, meaning minimum viable product, needed an app or not. And needless to say, we are super thankful that we committed to putting in a Bluetooth antenna and developing a mobile app because it's just allowed us to learn, develop, test so much more with what is really just a, a single product.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a thermometer in there? Like can you tell what people's temperatures are with the wristband?
1: There are multiple temperature sensors in the device. They are used primarily to operate the control systems. Mm. But the opportunity to help people learn more about temperature, um, the possibility of measuring external temperature with them is something that is kind of in development right now.
0: Interesting stuff. So are there any other use cases that uh, you're looking at? So you're looking at sleep. Actually, before we move on from sleep, what, what are the effects of temperature? on sleep what are people doing are they waking up and just tapping a button and then falling back asleep in the middle of of the night or what is sleep mode
1: yeah well we were fairly limited in what we can do with this one piece of hardware but this fall asleep mode you described it accurately the idea is whether you're laying down to fall asleep or you wake up in the middle of the night um, and would like to go back to sleep It's a mode that you can turn on. It lasts 35 minutes and it slows down over time. So the idea is that it gives you some kind of a thermal anchor of warming or cooling and something that can help relax you, um, help you feel more comfortable and help you go back to sleep faster. So the technical term for that is sleep onset latency. But that's the that's where the sleep mode is right now. But we're very excited to continue to um, develop ways to use both this product and develop future products to help people get a better night's sleep because that is just so important for so many people and is really at the heart of a lot of a lot of problems that people experience during the day can be traced back to just poor quality of sleep at night.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Earlier, we talked about how how the Ember Wave is being used by some of your customers to regulate their social anxiety, and I'm wondering, um, is thermal regulation related to stress more generally? And is there any way that you see Ember Wave as having either like a stress mode or further research that could that could make stress modes possible?
1: So, first, speaking to our our customers, it's been really impressive that. Um, I've been really kind of pleasantly surprised by people who are aware of thermal undertones in their emotional or stress related experiences and then they themselves put the pieces together that they could potentially use a wearable personal comfort system to help them manage those subjective experiences. We knew that the research out there showed a really close relationship between thermal sensations and the balance of the autonomic nervous system. We're familiar; most people are familiar with this idea of like the fight or flight response. That's refers to the activation of your sympathetic nervous system, which is one half of the autonomic nervous system. The other is the parasympathetic, which is your relaxation response, and this kind of balance between your relaxation response and your fight or flight response dictates a lot of your physiological symptoms and is also closely tied to your experience with with temperature. One interest, this is kind of a tangent, but since um, since we're both kind of temperature sensation nerds, um, there's this phenomenon called the diving response. Have you come across that? No. So the diving response refers to, um, just anecdotally, if you plunge your head into a bucket of ice water, your heart rate plummets. Um, typically, if you're exposed to a stressor, like, say, putting your hand in a bucket of ice water, your heart rate spikes. You kind of like, you know, you're getting revved up in response to a stressor. But if you put your face in a bucket of ice water, or even just hold an ice pack under your eyes, your heart rate drops. And this is called the diving response. And it's an evolutionary trait. The evolutionary perspective on it is when a mammal dives underwater, it needs to start conserving oxygen. But if you do this as a human above water, and we, we have had times where we've done this in the office as a nice little emotional reset, and wearing heart rate sensors and everything just to watch it happen. It's a hardcore emotional reset to put your head in a bucket of ice water. And that might be surprising to you or not. I don't know. But um, super interesting. And one of these examples of how there's so much more to learn about thermal sensations and um, the subjective human experience and how it could be can be harnessed. So we do have people out there using it to help with their mood, um, help deal with stress. I personally, my number one use case is using it to kind of deal with anxiety, but we're not like making claims about that or anything. So there's a lot of, you know, we started with thermal comfort. We have this kind of category of temperature challenges that are side effects of other things, like specifically hot flashes and just cooling relief for people with hot flashes. But we're also seeing this I think it was kind of tertiary, like two rings removed from temperature, ways to use thermal sensations to manage experiences that are not obviously thermal. And we're really, it's just been super cool. It's been such an incredible journey. and, um, And we're really excited to, with this recent round of financing, get to bring a second generation product to market to help continue to, to learn and also give people a tool for using temperature to live a better life.
0: That's that's awesome. So for the 10-year vision of this technology, as we move into an era uh, with 5G distributed broadband and the tactile internet is sometimes what it's called because you know we'll have this low latency, this ability to touch each other through the internet in real time, do you see Thermal feedback is playing a role there, and do you see more generally thermal feedback as something that can contain information or feedback that is more uh, maybe meaningful that goes beyond the the qualities of of pleasantness or regulating sleep or stress, but actually being used as a channel for communication? Is that something you've looked at at all, or, or that you see as potentially an
1: interesting avenue? I think. Th- we've seen technology come so far in our in our lifetime and it's funny that you and i can sit here now and kind of say yep people are saying 5g is coming and we can even imagine 10 years in the future because we all remember 10 years ago when you know the iphone we were in the early generations of iphones or 10 years before that when i just got my first cable modem and could finally like run around you know, on a Counter-Strike map without incredible lags. So the 10 years in the future, well, I think also in the last couple decades, though, with this technology proliferation, I'm very much on the side of technology right now is not holistically like it has its downsides. We're actually we're possibly less happy right now with the ways that technology is becoming so ubiquitous but I am also a technology kind of determinist. Like I think it's moving forward and it's going to continue to move forward. And so on one axis, I'm really optimistic about thermal sensations becoming part of our ubiquitous technology interactions. I think they're a very natural experience as a haptic person, like you mentioned embodied cognition, like we experience the world through sensations, and it affects how we think and how we feel. And I am really optimistic about thermal sensations, hopefully, being a big part of um, restoring some sanity to our technical interactions. That's really my like, over the rainbow view of where this world of haptics is going certainly with 5g and this ability to uh connect everything immediately to everything else it's very attractive <laughs> even in the kind of less glamorous acknowledgement of i mean i don't think many wearable technology companies or companies in general are willing to say this but like pairing stuff to your phone is annoying and things are constantly unpairing and even big mature companies, whether it's Bluetooth speakers or other wearable accessories, that is certainly not ideal. So that's a little less of an imaginative thing. And just like, yeah, it would be great to not have to pair to your phone and still have a connected device. We had a very, we did a very cool study with Draper Labs here in Cambridge, looking at using thermal sensations for situational awareness. So we integrated some ember wave prototypes with an augmented reality system and showed that adding directional thermal cues to a heads-up display that was also giving you directional information could improve your response time and the accuracy of your response. So there's certainly a lot of potential. I, I'm a temperature champion. Like I'm, I'm swimming in the Kool-Aid. You're dunking your head in the Kool-Aid. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm <laughs> diving, diving, doing diving responses in the temperature Kool-Aid. Um, it is, I think, a lot of the value of temperature will come through integrating with other sensory experiences also. So Emberwave had incredible legs and we've talked a lot about all of these people that are finding value in really using just temperature on its own and for a lot of the early years in our company we didn't we couldn't say confidently that a single functionality device like the wave would have enough value for people to adopt we we were pretty openly acknowledging that this will probably have to get integrated into other technology that had other value we were wrong like it creates enough value that there there are markets for single functionality wearable heating and cooling devices but certainly in the future both through wireless and hardware integration i think temperature and communication temperature and social interaction temperatures that can augment multi-sensory experiences certainly temperature will be an important part of creating more and more immersive ar vr experiences I view it as really, it's a, it's a human-computer interface for sure. And I think we've shown with our wristband that it is possible to make a low-power, wearable, thermal-sensation machine. And with that, I totally believe that it's kind of an inevitable part of, of our future human-machine interactions.
0: So you're going to be at Smart Haptics in uh, December this year. What are you going to talk about there?
1: Yeah, I will be there. Um, Probably sharing a lot about Ember, about the wave, and a lot of similar topics to what we've covered in this conversation. The wave, how it works and hacks your perspective on temperature, more about how the physiology, sensory physiology of thermal sensations. And we we talked a little bit about this, about to what extent does hap, like single functionality haptics, like for wellness, hopefully continuing the conversation with people about how sensations just on their own, let even without integrating them into VR or or video games can can create a lot of value for people and I know there's some other really interesting haptics companies in the vibrotactile space that are influencing how people feel and I'm really excited to uh to jump into this community. That's great. So where can we find you online? We are at um emberlabs.com. Ember, I'll end this with is actually an acronym. Oh. Yeah, it's Environment mind body resonance um, and this dates all the way back to our personal comfort system days where we felt like there's this opportunity to improve kind of the resonance between your mind body interactions and the environment around you. Um, but it's really stuck because it still is kind of it captures this entire world of thermal wellness that we're moving into. So, EMBR Ember, there's no second E, Labs.com, and we're also on Instagram and um,
0: and Twitter. Well, it's been really awesome talking to you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Um, you're certainly an expert within a little you're like a niche expert within a (laughs) niche, right? So you're like the guy, you're the temperature guy. I don't think anybody is as articulate about temperature feedback as you, as least that I've ever met. So thanks so much for lending your perspective. Really, really appreciate it.
1: It's been a a great pleasure and um, you're welcome back to my niche within niches anytime, Dave.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening. You can find me online at daveburnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at daveburnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2019, Dave Birnbaum.